Hi, I'm Sean Murray and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. In this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. This week, we look at Operation Banner, the name attributed to the British Army's role during the conflict between 1969 until it officially ended in 2007. My next guest served in various units of the British Army during this period and later became a member of Veterans for Peace. But before we speak to our next guest, let's get a quick overview on this week's topic. As always, we are joined by our resident co-presenter, Michelle Gildernew. Michelle is the current MP for Fermanagh, South Tyrone. She has served in the Northern Ireland Assembly as a former Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development and Chairperson of the Health Committee, amongst other things. Michelle has been a Sinn Féin activist since her teens and has been elected almost continuously since 1998. And today's guest is Glenn Bradley. Glenn is a former British soldier who later became an officer in the Ulster Unionist Party participating in the talks that led to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Glenn continues to engage in various initiatives to advance peace, reconciliation and evolve political thinking on the island of Ireland. Glenn Bradley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Garmin Glenn, you grew up on the Shangle Road, not far from where we're actually sitting right now. Can you tell us a bit about your childhood? First thing is, if I'd said I grew up on the Shangle Road, my granny had beat me. I grew up on the Woodville Road. <laughs> which is the top end of the shankle. Um, I was born in 1967 into a left-leaning, socialist-leaning, working-class family um, in a poverty-stricken street, two up, two down, terraced house, tin bath on the wall, no running hot water. My inheritance of life was that I was born into a loyal Irish family. What do I mean by loyal Irish? I mean that we looked eastwards for sovereignty. We were the Irish dimension along with Welsh, English and Scots that made up the British nation, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And that is the politic that I was born into, a very hearthly home, but where politics was daily discussed, largely as a consequence of the poverty that surrounded us all. Poverty reigned in the area. Obviously being born in 1967, it was also on the cusp of the civil uprising that was happening here in Northern Ireland. And while I had nothing to do with the previous 50 years of the Orange State and what had happened, 
I certainly was born into that area of era of violence and in actual fact until the ceasefires of 1994 and 1997 I knew only violence in my life so I grew up with daily armed violence all around me on um, everyday basis you know our, our days were spent listening to bombs listening to gunfire armed patrols on the street para aggression provisional IRA aggression against my community uh, loyalist paramilitary violence against my community every single day on our streets. So what motivated you then, Glenn, to join the British Army? I too grew up in a very political house and politics was discussed daily as well. We also um, would have understood poverty, mm -hmm. but equality and opportunities and things like that were what we were talking about. It was how we were treated compared to our neighbours a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. As far as I was concerned, uh, I had grown up in a community that was under physical attack by the IRA. You know, day and daily, it was armed aggression against my community, and we were being failed by the RUC, we were being failed by the British Army. And in 1972, um, age, age five, um, I was injured in an IRA no warning car bomb. And in that small community that I come from, we knew lots of people who were getting injured. We knew lots of people who were, were getting killed. And it, it really came to a head for me on, on the day that Bobby Sands died. When, when, when Bobby died um, uh, uh, during that May period, you know, I, I was attending the Belfast Boys Model School and our school bus was returning. And nationalists and Republicans had formed a gauntlet uh, at the Ardoin roundabout, and they, they petrol-bombed our school bus. And there was lots of derogatory language being shouted, you know, burn you hun this, and so on and so forth. And But for the bravery of the bus driver on the day who put his, his foot to the, the accelerator and actually mounted the, the Ardoin roundabout and got us to the relative safety of, of Woodville Road, you know, the, the casualties would have been far higher. But it's the first day that, it, that I remember seething hatred in me. You know, I got off that bus and looking back up towards the roundabout, you know, my thought was, I'm going to kill you. I am going to kill you. And I was 14 years of age. And I, it, it, it was my, I, I get to there's, Hundreds of thousands of other people would have joined the British Army without this motivation, but my motivation as a 16-year-old was quite naive at the time. You know, I, I was a kid who had grown up in a very closeted and, and tight-knit community, who was sectarian in, in my thinking, who believed that the Northern Ireland conflict was wholly and solely about my community and, and, and getting raped by IRA violence. And I, I, I felt that the only way that that violence could, could be stopped was to be met by other violence. And then I, I naively joined the British Army thinking, I'll get the best training possible and go back to Northern Ireland and take the fight to the enemy. At 16? At 16. At 16 years of age. The British Army is, only, is, is one of three armies in the world that recruits children into its ranks. And it is entirely legal for uh, 16-year-olds, even now, today in 2023, I'm talking 1984, but in 20, you know, a child of age 16 can join the British Army. So you, you joined the British Army, I mean, 
What, what was the first regiment you joined? Because I understand you were in various regiments. Yeah, yeah. I initially enlisted into the Parachute Regiment, but I also served with uh, the Royal Irish Rangers, 1st Battalion the Royal Irish Rangers, and I also did special duty tours during Operation Banner, which would be specific to my deployments in, in Northern Ireland. I, did a com I actually did five tours in Northern Ireland. So, Glenn, you said you joined the British Army to get the best training. Does that mean you had an urge to join a loyalist paramilitary group or did you, is that what you were thinking? Um, as a teenager there is no doubt that I considered joining the 1st Battalion of the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF, which would be a loyalist paramilitary group. You know, I, I come from a family that is, is steeped in the tradition of the UVF and it would have been very easy, particularly with the area that I live in, uh, for me to join B Company. But my, my uncle, um, who was a, a local politician at the time in, in the Progressive Unionist Party, put the vibes out to make sure that if I approached anyone, which I tried to do, that I would be declined the offer to enlist into the UVF. And uh, so yes, enlisting the paramilitary, Lord's paramilitary did cross my mind, uh, but it wasn't uh, a viable option for me because concerned relatives made sure that that course of action that would only lead to death or prison wasn't available to me. You know, that the army was the lesser of two evils, so to speak, and I was encouraged to join the British Army. You joined the British Army. Just cut forward and on a, a, a little bit. You then, when you retired from the army, you joined the Ulster Unionist Party? For me, the the murder of my, my uncle, DC Louis Robinson, in September 1990, um, played heavily on me, you know, that, that was within our tactical area of responsibility. The 2nd Battalion, the Royal Irish Rangers, were, were serving as ARB, um, and, and Louis was abducted in their area. So there I was. Do you, want, do you just want to tell a bit about that, Glenn? My uncle was Detective Constable Louis Robinson of, of the RUC. Um, he had been fishing uh, down in County Kerry, was coming uh, back home, cro crossing the border. Um, when the IRA, posing as UDR soldiers, abducted him. They held him for three days, torturing him, before hooding him and executing him. And that all happened within the TAOR of, of the regiment that I was in, the Royal Irish Rangers at that time. And I assisted in the search operation to try and locate his body. I wouldn't have said it was a catalytic moment that made me get out of the army because I, you know, I, I went on to do a further four years, but um, there was it. And then I, I did a six month tour in Bosnia in 1992. And I think the combination of both those, I was moving, I was evolving from believing that violence could satisfy things. And I was moving into, a reality for me where I believed that violence was futile and, and I left the army uh, because of that in 1994. And then, so you were, you joined the Ulster Unionist Party at that yeah, stage then, yeah, I, 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 hopes I, for peace or what? Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, but by this stage I'd gone from being a, a naive kid who worshipped at the high altar of violence to someone who believed that dialogue, engagement, equitable equality 
were the only things that could resolve the political situation in Northern Ireland. So I landed back here in 1994, back to the Woodfield, the area that I came from, and there was no change. There was no change from 1984 and 1984 on the poverty or anything. Nothing was being addressed. It was still the usual fly or traips a Union Jack over a donkey and put it up for election, it would get election. And I said, no, 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 this can't continue. So I, I, I initially, again, funny enough, was going to join the Progressive Unionist Party. But my uncle felt that because of my army service, I would never be trusted. And he said, you'd be better off going into the UUP and you'd probably get further on politically than what you could. So I joined the Ulster Unionist Party. So my motivation at the Good Friday Agreement was to get a, a peace accord on which we could then build to create equitable equality and address all the imbalances that, in my view, had made Northern Ireland unworkable up, up to that point. So that was my motivation in being a Nails to Unionist Party. So it was about, for me, it was about ground truth, uh, community politic engagement, and, and, and addressing the, the, the causes of conflict and the, the, the reasons for gross poverty in the area that I came from. And you later, you later became a member of Veterans for Peace. What, yeah, yeah, what yeah. motivated you to, to, to do that? For me, it was just a natural evolution of the journey and the path that I, I was on. You know, I go back and I say, you know, I was this naive kid who worshipped at the high altar of violence. And I'd gone through this transition to being this peacenik who simply felt, felt that violence was futile and could achieve nothing. And Veterans for Peace for me was my natural home where I could openly discuss who I was, the journey I had been on, and but also related to, 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 to being in the army amongst people who understood my language and, who, and who, who could speak to me. So for me, it was just a natural evolution to join Veterans for Peace. You're still tuned into The Conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs around Ireland. I'm joined by our co-host, Michelle Gildernew, alongside our special guest, Glenn Bradley, who served in various regiments of the British Army and is now a member of Veterans for Peace. Was there one particular event or one incident that sparked that desire to go from a combatant mm. to somebody who promoted and worked towards peace? Not that I can remember. I can't recall a singular catalytic moment. Obviously, the, the, the murder of my Uncle Louis and, and everything around that and my, my service in Bosnia, it fed heavily. Um, on me, but there, there's not a singular event that I can remember that made me go from this rather naive kid that had worshipped at the, the high altar of violence uh, to, 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 to be in a peacenik. Um, there, there's, there's just nothing that is singularly correct. You know, I, I did five tours here, and, and as you know, you know, serving in, in Fermanagh is entirely different to serving in Belfast, and, and, and the duties that a soldier would have done at that time. But, but what I did identify with them was the, the belligerence um, of politicians of, of that era, and it really, really annoyed me because no one was addressing poverty. Nobody was addressing the causes of conflict. And what, what, what I mean by the causes of conflict is, you know, 
at that period of time, 1986 or whatever it was, I think we had, um, at that stage, there was probably about 16,000 Republicans and 10,000 Loyalists that had, had been um, arrested, charged through the process and were, were in long cash. And, you know, something didn't happen in 1968 to suddenly make, you know, over 26,000 people wake up the next morning and go, we're violent and we're going to do this. Nobody was identifying the causes of conflict, which, in my opinion, also relates to the causes of poverty because they go hand in glove together. And I just had this desire and urge that, again, coming back to what I said earlier about my children, you know, I did not want them to inherit the socio-economic political basket case that I had been born into. And I felt a, a, a real duty and responsibility to address the causes of conflict and the reason why Northern Ireland was in such poverty. And not even today, that remains my motivation. The only difference today is I'm now talking about my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, Michelle, there was things agreed in the Good Friday Agreement, things like the Bill of Rights and so mm -hmm. on, that, we, that have never, ever been addressed because politicians, some politicians here don't want to. I agree with you and having been elected in 1998 into the First Assembly, I can tell you now that your, your worldview is very different from the vast majority of unionist politicians that I worked with, worked in committees, looked at tackling poverty. A lot of some of the unionist politicians up there had no clue about poverty, how it existed, about um, how young people could end up homelessness. They just had such, they were tone deaf to the actual problems that we're facing our society? I think a lot of that is to do with political unionism and what political unionism has been doing for the last hundred years from the creation of this state. You know, as McGrandy used to say, you know, up a shackle, you could bring a donkey, trips a, a union jack over it and would get elected. And that's what political unionism has been doing for a hundred years, you know. Back in 86, it was, what, 70, 40 years ago, 60 years I was talking about, you know, nothing has changed. You know, people from outside the areas are parachuted into the areas and they get elected because of flag waving, because of things that are completely irrelevant to addressing the causes of poverty, the causes of undereducation within the unionist community. And it's an absolute disaster. And, and this ethos, if you like, carried you in to business. Just, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Well, it wasn't, obviously I had to work. You know, I wasn't, um, you know, when I joined the Ulster Unionist Party, it was a voluntary role. You know, you're not paid to be a constituency chairman. You're not paid as the treasurer. Um, it was about activism and it was about trying through the party to address things. So I, I always worked and, and coming from a, a military background as I did, Haulage and supply chains were naturally where I felt at home, so um, I, I formed a business in, in partnership with a guy. We were located in James's business park in, in Finglas, and we created a small cross-border um, haulage distribution company, and we went very quickly uh, to making decent money. Glenn, you're, you're a few years older than me, but um, you, you, we basically want the same thing. We want a future for our children and grandchildren that's different to our upbringing. I can't ever envisage that within a six county administration. How do you feel about how we move into the future in a way 
the last 100 years, as you've pointed out, haven't been good for anybody. Society is broken here. I don't know, can it be fixed? But I don't see it ever been fixed within a six county settlement. What's your views on that? My view, you know, the Good Friday Agreement is our common denominator, Michelle. It's the common denominator of all the people in, in this region, you know, and when the people ratified the Good Friday Agreement, it became our mechanism for all political discourse. Within the Good Friday Agreement, there is the provisions for a, what people call a border poll, a, a referendum, that the people here of their own vocation can choose to stay in either the United Kingdom or they can choose to go for something new. That's something new to me is personally more attractive than the current status quo. You know, and, and, and within me and my political journey, I think pre-Brexit, I was maybe happy to go along with things, but Brexit irreversibly, irrevocably proved to me that this small place that we call home is of no consideration to Westminster. Because, the stat, because political unionism, in my opinion, and keep in mind I come from that tribe, has utterly failed to deliver, to address anything for the last hundred years. The British government has failed to address anything in the last hundred years. And I just am at that stage of life where I'm going, well, what's the fear from trying something new? Mm -hmm. I don't fear change, you know, my whole life has been about embracing change and evolution. So for me, you know, if the border poll was happening tomorrow, I would be voting to end the union with Britain. And I would be voting to create something anew here in Ireland that is for all of the people of this island, all seven point whatever it is, two million offers, that is equal, that delivers equitable equality, that addresses poverty, that addresses social housing needs, that addresses all the issues that for the last hundred years have not been addressed in this statement. Well, I think on that note, I want to thank you for coming in. Uh, it's great to have you today and it's always good to see you. Thanks thank you. Thank you. Thanks thank you both, Carmen and me, Ogden. This week, we take a look at the history of Crumlin Road Jail. While this Victorian-era prison has now been transformed into a public museum, its history is one embedded in the foundations of the state. One where the hangman was always busy. Built in 1845, Crumlin Road Jail has bore witness to a fraught period of Irish history. In its 150 years, children from impoverished families, political prisoners and suffragettes were among 25,000 people incarcerated within its walls. The first 106 inmates who were forced to walk from Carrickfergus Prison in Chains arrived in 1846. In a city where poverty was rife, children were often jailed for menial offences such as stealing food or clothing. 13-year-old Patrick McGee, who had been sentenced to three months in prison, hanged himself in his cell in 1858. That same year, a law was introduced forbidding children under the age of 14 to be sent to an adult prison. Women inmates were kept in the prison blockhouse until the early 1900s. Suffragettes among them, Dorothy Evans and Madge Muir, 
were imprisoned in the jail during 1914. Before the gallows was built in 1901, executions were carried out in full public view. An execution chamber was then constructed within the prison walls and used until the last of the hangings in 1961. 17 prisoners were executed in the prison, the last being Robert McLattery, who was hanged in 1961 for the murder of Pearl Gamble. The bodies of the executed were buried inside the prison in unconsecrated ground against the back wall beside the prison hospital. The execution of Tom Williams, a 19-year-old member of the IRA, took place on the 2nd of September, 1942. He was hanged for the killing of an RUC officer. The hangman in charge was Thomas Pierpoint, the jail's most regular hangman, who carried out six executions in the jail between 1928 and 1942. After a long campaign by friends and comrades of Williams, he was disinterred and buried in Milltown Cemetery in the year 2000. Despite being known as Europe's Alcatraz, there were a number of successful escape attempts at the jail. The first recorded escape was in 1866. In May 1941, five Irish Republican prisoners made their escape over the walls of freedom. During its 150-year history, the jail had many prisoners pass through its doors. Some of the more well-known prisoners included former Irish Taoiseach Eamon de Valera, former Deputy First Minister Martin McGuinness and the hunger striker Bobby Sands. On the 24th of November 1991, during the last stages of the conflict, the Loyalist wing of the prison became the target of a provisional IRA bomb that killed a UVF and UDA prisoner. A rocket attack by Loyalists on the jail in the early 90s was also close to killing a number of Republicans. In 1996, the jail closed its doors for the last time, where it is now used as a museum, becoming a major tourist attraction for the many international visitors to post-conflict Belfast. And that does it for another week. We'd love for you to join the conversation by sharing the link to today's programme to help us grow our audience across all our social media platforms. I'd like to thank our special guest, Glenn Bradley, and my co-host, Michelle Gildenew. In the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.